This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Brendan Cunningham. He is a professor of economics and he is the author of a book called Selling the Crown, The Secret History of Marketing Rolex. Brendan, welcome. Hi, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the uh, discussion. There's so much that we could talk about. You are you know, a fellow blogger about watches, a, fe- a fellow aficionado. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm a, uh, an amateur uh, econ- economist in terms of really appreciating that perspective of, of you know, seeing how the world is working. Um, so there's so much we can talk about, but I think we could spend an entire hour talking about your book. Uh, I will... I will you know, disclose that I haven't read it yet, but you're going to give me and everyone else a preface and I am going to read it because this is about exactly what I like. It's about marketing. It's about storytelling. It's about the history of the watch industry. And Rolex, which as a company, I've always said is sort of one of those eighth wonders of the world. And I'm just curious what your perspective is on Rolex as a business entity. Is it as interesting and intriguing as I think it is? Or is it actually kind of basic and there's a lot of companies like it? No, no. I, I think that Rolex is extremely unique uh, among um, brands actually across a whole bunch of different industries. You look at sort of what they did in a, a relatively short period of time in the early 20th century, you know, starting from scratch, as it were, um, with uh, Wilsdorf, uh, you know, starting to kind of buy parts from from different small manufacturers and, and building up to the sort of integrated manufacturer that they are today, uh, you know, doing that globally uh, through all kinds of different wars, all kinds of different recessions uh, and expansions. Um, It's just a a truly remarkable story of how an organization uh, came to build this extremely valuable brand. Um, And yeah, one of the interesting parts of Rolex, I think, is that a lot of that story is kind of untold. And my effort in this book was to actually um, get some primary source materials that would help us understand a little bit more about about what it took to build that brand and uh, exactly what efforts contributed uh, to the success of Rolex. We're going to be going back in time a little bit, and I'm going to want to hear from you talking about the formation of the company and some of the early marketing efforts. But before we do that, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Rolex as a company today, because I think as an economist and as someone who looks at it from a business perspective as opposed to a mere brand perspective, you'll agree that there's some very intriguing things going on. And one of the things that I think is important to say is that Rolex doesn't really make a profit in the traditional sense. It's owned by a non-profit organization, and Rolex more or less has to reinvest much of the money that it makes. So it does, of course, make profit. Um, what do you know about how Rolex operates today and how can you compare it to some other companies in terms of what it does with the money that it makes? Well, I think you you bring up an excellent point, which is that Rolex, because it, it does not have sort of an effort to uh, 
appease shareholders, if you will, on a quarterly basis and um, maybe potentially fret about, uh, you know, certain markets and how they're performing and, and how shareholders might respond to that. It can really keep an eye on on sort of the long run in some sense. And um, that actually allows it to sort of uh, plow a lot of its profits back into R&D and design, as well as sort of uh, charitable efforts supporting the arts, uh, supporting, um, you know, all kinds of different um, scientific ventures over time. And and that has been sort of a longstanding effort on the part of the company, in addition to its sponsorship of, of different high-profile sporting events. So it's, it's a very unique company in the sense that the way it's structured from a corporate perspective just kind of gives it a very different approach to how it does uh, what it does. In addition, compared to a lot of other brands, um, they are still, by and large, sticking to the, you know, authorized dealership model of <clears throat> of distribution, whereas uh, some other brands we, we see these days, like uh, Patek, Automotive, Piguet, they're starting to explore sort of um, branching out into that um, area closer to the consumer or the collector um, and distributing directly. And and so far, Rolex has kind of uh, resisted more or less that, that movement. Do you think that it's interesting to consider what Hans Wilsdorf himself left? Because, and this may be a fantasy, but I believe that he set up a certain type of business structure prior to his death which has forced Rolex into this particular state. When I say forced, I don't mean like unwantedly, but I think that there would be an impetus to bring in shareholders, let people at the top profit more, not have to engage in this particular structure. I don't have evidence of this in, in terms of documentation, but I think there's enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that the, the foundation has a, a sort of operating principle and very specific directives, and that Rolex sort of has to operate this way because of something that Wilsdorf has done. I don't know how long it can last. Uh, uh, as long as the foundation lasts, I suppose, these sort of rules can, can be maintained. But what do you know about, um, again, his wishes before he died and, and, and the sort of the, the rules that dictate how Rolex is supposed to be run today? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So there actually is a charter, I believe, written in... I believe it's German, but it may be French. Um, it, it is fairly unstructured in, in some sense. Um, Wilsdorf did make this directive that um, that sort of residual earnings, or you know, in a, in another business that you you call a for-profit business, uh, or you would call that profits in, in most other uh, businesses, uh, those residual earnings were meant to be directed towards uh, various uh, charitable. Um, efforts. Um, and I believe in part that uh, one of the things Wellsdorf was interested in, I believe, was was with people with, uh, you know, helping people with certain physical impairments. Um, right. So he was very, very focused on um, sort of taking this business that he built from the ground up, a business that was employing a lot of people um, and, and providing people with good livelihoods and, and taking sort of the extra earnings because he didn't have, um, you know, children of his own. Or, or um, heirs to pass the business along to, taking these these residual earnings and and helping those that that needed help, and also supporting the arts and, and that sort of thing. So there is a fair degree of latitude um, within that sort of 
those guidelines from Wilsdorf about about what the business would do. Um, but there is a board of directors that sort of oversees the the management of the company um, and chooses you know CEOs over time uh, and that sort of thing. One one thing I I did encounter in my book was just the extent to which um, Wilsdorf was very very effective at building competency among the the sort of younger next generation that was going to uh, take over the business from him down the road. Um, and you see folks like the Heinegers who, you know, had been working with him for a long time, um, clearly understood his vision, clearly understood um, the lessons he had learned in terms of building a successful brand. And they sort of took it to the next level um, when, when it was their turn uh, at the helm. So, um, I think both in terms of you know structuring the business, but also in terms of Wilsdorf working with people uh, to sort of pass along his lessons learned. You know it, what he did was was extremely remarkable. Now you write the secret uh, as part of the title, and secrecy and discretion is a huge part of not only Swiss culture but Rolex in general. My final question on this specific topic is: Is it possible that there's a list of directives that we just don't know about that haven't been made public? that are there that dictate things, but you and I not being in Rolex will never know about it. I, I think it, it's certainly possible. I think that um, the company has shown a great deal of discretion and ability to sort of control messaging and, you know, you don't see a whole lot of, you know, successful or, or product leaks um, or successful attempts to learn products ahead of major events like uh, Watches and Wonders that that's coming up. Um, it is very difficult to say um, exactly what is in the Rolex archives, but both in terms of um, Wilsdorf's own, you know, uh, collection, which which Rolex sort of inherited from him, uh, of of watches and pocket watches and that sort of thing, and and also. Um, you know the the actual directives that he wrote down in terms of operating the business. Um, so you know until Rolex sort of you know creates an archival service where where researchers can come in and and perhaps take a look at the library that they've built up over time, we won't know exactly um, what what directives are at play and and sort of whether there's a a playbook that that the Rolex managers uh, try to hold to. But we can actually look at how the company has operated and the success of the company, a success that started with Wilsdorf, and, and kind of uh, conclude that whatever the secret sauce is, they're, they're doing a great job with it. Let's move the conversation naturally over towards marketing, because one of the things that you can do when you don't have shareholders is reinvest a lot of that money into marketing. You talk about nonprofit, charity, uh, and of course, research and development and human resources. But being able to invest in marketing is another very important thing. And if you look at the numbers, Rolex continuously spends more money on marketing per year than, than many other brands. I've written uh, theorizing that the, the amount of money that Rolex puts into marketing each year is so great that without it, if Rolex suddenly stopped spending on marketing, the entire industry would collapse because they're sort of riding under this umbrella that Rolex is creating. And that mm. thing that Rolex is creating is telling the world, hey, everyone, luxury watches are a thing and you should pay attention to that. Even if you don't buy from us, you need to know that luxury watches are a thing. And Rolex has an outsized uh, responsibility in, in telling that story mm. uh, to the world continuously. But other companies do not spend as much money <clears throat> 
in marketing as Rolex because they have shareholders and things like that. Having mm. corporate ownership is definitely not helping when it comes to spending money on marketing. What can you say about Rolex's structure and why it allows them to spend so lavishly in marketing and, and how important that is for your story? Yeah, so I do. Th I agree with you completely that Rolex kind of um, understands this uh, in economics, what we call uh, sort of a spillover um, or externality from its decision to advertise. And, and this is something that would be true about almost any Swiss brand, this idea that, hey, if we, we promote uh, the excellent craftsmanship or, or, you know, the work we do in, in terms of developing high accuracy timekeeping, um, if we do that, then you know other brands will benefit from that as well. Sort of the the notion of a rising tide lifts all boats. Now Rolex, because they are not necessarily competing with others in order to again meet this bottom line need for profits on a quarterly basis, they can kind of internalize that benefit to the industry as a whole um, from their. Um, their marketing. And this is something we actually see in a lot of places where um, nonprofit organization is at play, right? So if you look, you know, at, for example, um, higher education, uh, colleges and universities, most of those are, are organized as nonprofits because there are just all sorts of benefits um, that, that, those organizations need to consider in terms of, you know, offering uh, what it is that they offer um, that sort of go beyond the, the bottom line of profits in some sense. And I think in my book, one of the things I sort of came to understand um, with Rolex was, and, and I do think this holds for a lot of different brands, is this notion that there is some sort of distributed benefit um, across many different people um, that the, the company needed to sort of um, consider and then um, act upon so that all these distributed parties uh, would actually, um, at the end of the day, benefit from uh, whatever it is. And when it comes to marketing, what I have in mind um, is this sort of network of authorized dealerships or authorized dealers um, around the globe. So one of the key things um, my, my book sort of explores is this idea that Rolex from Geneva uh, was sort of considering the idea that, hey, if we coordinate advertising around the globe and make sure it's funded to an adequate level, this will benefit all those people who have agreed to join with us in this venture of, you know, trying to sell our product in all these markets that are that are very, very different um, in language, in culture, and in that sort of thing. So, so I do think that is a, a longstanding uh, principle that the, the company has had, um, looking for these sort of diffuse benefits from marketing, sort of internalizing that, and then also partnering with people that can sort of help them, you know, realize those benefits. I, I want to, I'm so happy you said that, because I want to sort of say a layer on top of that. Uh, I do agree that it's such an important thing that Rolex has made a long-term decision to work with authorized dealers. What they're essentially doing is the bargain with them is we will create demand you fulfill the demand, right? Mm -hmm. So we are making the watches, which is a nice product, and we're making a sexy brand. You need both of those elements to sell a luxury product. And then you, as a retailer, have to close the deal. We're going to get mm -hmm. them in the store. Once they're in, you close. 
And I think that that has been a successful symbiotic relationship between authorized dealer and Rolex. What I find interesting, I like your opinion on this, even though Rolex is such a rich company, huge amount of capital, they still rely on the pre-orders from retailers before engaging in these production runs, which are, again, enormously expensive, huge amounts of mm-hmm. materials, labor. No doubt that, that doing production runs of watches are crazy expensive. But why do you think it is that Rolex today maintains this model where they still rely on funding from these third parties before they decide to make product? Yeah, th- that's a great question. And I, I do think that a lot of... Uh, Sort of the the behaviors you observe in in the watch industry, um, generally, um, you can sort of understand those behaviors um, through the the lens of sort of risk sharing. Um, that is sort of hey, these are ventures that that may not go well, and so how can we sort of join with other partners um, to sort of spread that risk. Um, you know, as as much as possible, in essence, and and really, that is the sort of um, one of the major upsides of working with an authorized dealer is is in particular sharing in in risk when it comes to to cash flow. So you know, it it when you work with authorized dealers and they're placing these orders in advance, um, you have sort of almost a, a guaranteed flow of cash, and that can just make your business um, a lot more easy to run. You can; it's a lot easier to make, make payroll. It's a lot easier to get the raw materials you need to manufacture the watches, um, uh, so on and so forth. So that is a huge upside to really any brand that uh, works with an authorized dealer. Is that a lot of the cash flow risk kind of uh, dissipates, assuming your authorized dealers are, are you know well financed and and can make and and fill those orders uh, on a regular basis. Oh, another upside, it just includes the fact that, um, you know, as economists, we are uh, huge fans generally of the idea of specialization, that if if people sort of focus on core competencies or something like that, they get very, very good at those core competencies because they get a lot of practice with it. And, um, a lot of the Swiss watch industry actually sort of runs in the opposite direction, uh, particularly in terms of manufacturing. At, at one point, you know, a lot of different organizations would specialize in different parts of the watch, dials, um, sapphire, cases, so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, you have integrated manufacturers now that are not really, I mean, they're specialized in the manufacture of watches, but not specialized in terms of, individual components. Um, but Rolex's decision to um, continue with the authorized dealer model does provide it with huge benefits in the sense that, you know, you have these uh, organizations that are specializing in that sort of last mile to the collector. Um, and it, that takes a whole lot of work um, to sort of you know, identify people who might buy the watches, um, you know, bring them into the stores, share information about the watches, um, all kinds of, you know, local, um, well, languages are, are one of the key uh, challenges there if you're selling across many, many markets and, you know, the authorized dealers are going to, you know, you know, know how to kind of talk to consumers and, uh, and buyers in a whole lot of different ways. And so those benefits of specialization, um, you know, Rolex says, 
looked at the situation and said, you know, that that's the way to go uh, when it comes to uh, this last mile to the consumer. Let's let the authorized dealers um, handle that, and we'll specialize on um, watch manufacturing. I'm so happy you talked about risk because it's interesting that, you know, as rich as Rolex is, they have this model, which is really about minimizing risk. Other people help pay for these things. It helps maximize cash flow. The The lowest risk way of going about producing a batch of watches is the way that they're essentially doing it. And what's interesting is that on the same time, Rolex views not marketing as a risk. Uh, part of their entire philosophy is to spend, I don't know what it is, it's a, it's a large amount of their income on marketing and they will be everywhere. They want to be in every airport, all the major events. Uh, Rolex needs to be there. They, I, I'm going to say it. They see it as a risk to not market as widely as possible and to not spend as much as possible on you know huge, impactful marketing in, in real-world places. Why is it that a lot of other brands, ones that have very smart people running them, have taken the opposite approach and seen spending on marketing as a risk as opposed to not spending on marketing as a risk? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. So, and and marketing has kind of um, you know changed over time and and in, in significant ways. Uh, these days, there's uh, all kinds of new forms of marketing where you can sort of you know target uh, where your ads are shown and and based upon sort of uh, demographics and analytics that say for example uh, a social media platform might know about their users you can say okay i want this you know age range with this um you know income range and that's who i want to see uh, my ads. And so I do believe that um, one of the things we can sort of think about in terms of what differentiates Rolex from a lot of other brands is that um, some of those brands really are not necessarily trying to sell um, at the volume that that Rolex is selling at. Rolex is a huge manufacturer of you know, we don't know the exact number, but certainly hundreds of thousands of watches per year. And so they really do need to have that presence in order to um, sort of have uh, a lot of people buying their watches at volume uh, around the world. I think that there are other manufacturers maybe at a, a different price point, you know, closer to, well, maybe the price of a Daytona or, you know, something even more expensive than that. They're sort of playing a different game. They're, they're sort of playing a, a more niche marketing game where you're not going to necessarily see their ads in as many places. Um, they're going to sort of uh, target advertising uh, in very specific Specific ways, and I think that has to do with one of the old adages um, about advertising that we owe to a retailer out of Pennsylvania by the name of John Wanamaker, who used to say, "I know that half of my marketing budget is wasted. The only problem is I don't know which half it is." Such a great um, statement. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think there are some uh, companies that would that would rather try to keep the the expenditure um, sort of under control and and do their best to reach a very you know small number of buyers at a, at a very high price point. And and I think that's a, a different game. I think the funny thing is that while I believe you've accurately described what they're trying to do. 
I think it doesn't have any basis in success. I think it's shown that time after time it's difficult. It's more expensive to do it that way. It's very, very risky. It's better to do it the Rolex way, which is just to have a popular brand out there and people who have money will come find you. But if nobody knows about you, no one's going to come find you. But the other brands are like, no, let's have a sniper approach where we just individually target every buyer and we just have a, a high success rate. And I think what's important is that the amount of money it takes to develop those relationships with those VIP customers and wait it out until they buy something and spend all this time and effort on them, you're probably better off just having a more mass market or, or, or public you know, advertising campaign, because what you're trying to produce is not just a product, it's also a brand. And a brand must be communicated in one way or another. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely agree with that. I mean, even if you look at, and I, I wrote one article about this um, that was kind of suggested to me, but if, if you look at, um, in particular, sort of pop culture references to, and I don't know if pop culture is even the right term for this, but if you look at music references, modern mu- music references to some brands that, you know, have carry fairly high price tags like uh, Richard Mille and, and Audemars Piguet and uh, Patek Philippe, um, you, you do see that this can actually generate quite a bit of interest um, among a lot of people, uh, despite the fact that the watches may seem uh, to be sort of a reach or something that's going to take many, many years to to achieve. Um, and, and a lot of that is kind of organic, you know, the, um, artists and musicians sort of just learning about these brands brands and and uh, and really kind of loving what they're doing and and wanting to include it in their their art and their music but it does kind of show the point you're you're making which is that when when people hear this music um, you know again in this paper I kind of looked at um, searches for these brands when one of these songs was was first um, introduced uh, to the world, it, it is the case that you sort of see a mass market response to mentions of, of potentially niche brands. So I, I do think there's something to what you're saying. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vile in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Weil harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-wild.com to see more. Let's move on uh, back to the book, and let's start at a little bit of the beginning. Um, Rolex has operated in multiple ways over time. Obviously, uh, it, it being run as a new brand and under its founder, House Wilsdorf, has been obviously a little bit different than how it's run today with, without all that. But I think marketing was always very important. The, the, the marketing story that I always think of, and I don't know the full details behind it, was with the original Oyster and putting it on the wrist um, of this woman who I think swam across the, ch- the, the, the channel. Um, mm-hmm. And the whole point was to promote that uh, you could have a watch that was on the wrist while swimming and it was still telling time because this was 
Uh, <laughs> most watches were not water resistant. Um, and this was sort of seen as one of the most brilliant, you know, early ad campaigns. Rolex made physical advertising out of it. Is is this the most important story of early Rolex advertising, or is there something else that would, would overshadow this? I, I think that is actually, yeah, definitely one of the, the most important things Rolex did early on was with, with the Oyster case and uh, sort of, uh, you know, promoting it as something that offers all kinds of benefits, it, both in terms of water resistance, but in, in some of that early marketing, you also see them talking about sort of how it, it helps keep dust out of the, the watch and, and, you know, reduce service time and, and that sort of thing, because they, they even wanted to sort of you know, help people potentially understand that even if you don't swim or or know how to swim, it's worth having this this oyster case. So so that's certainly um, one of the most important um, early ads or, or ad campaigns, uh, which again was associated with sort of risky venturing, uh, swimming across the the English Channel, um, and success um, achieved in these sort of long odds. That is is a, a very regular theme of, of Rolex advertising. Um, but they also had some interesting early campaigns that um, sort of uh, might have actually um, landed them in a little bit of trouble, although it was it's not clear that they were actually responsible for this. But but in one campaign, there was sort of a suggestion that they, they were the first people to come up with um, the automatic winding uh, movement. And a, a British watchmaker actually had had earned a patent um, earlier than than Rolex for that development, and so he took them to court. And at some point, Wilsdorf kind of had to actually uh, publish a public statement saying, uh, "We kind of retract this statement, and uh, you know, this watchmaker was the first uh, to come up with it." But you know, being first is is uh, imp- sometimes important, but um, almost equally important is is doing it well and and helping people understand uh, what you've achieved, um, raising that awareness of your brand and and why it's worth people's hard earned money. And um, uh, certainly, Rolex's advertising campaigns, like this uh, campaign about um, swimming across the English Channel. Gave people some sense that 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 people doing tough work, people achieving important achievements, they turn to Rolex, um, and and that's what they buy, and that's a message that's been very effective for the brand over over decades. Was that a concept that Rolex came up with, or did they adopt it? You know, was there a shoe company that was saying, and the most important people to do the craziest thing wear our shoes, and Rolex is like, oh, that's great, we'll say that about our watches, or was that a novel thing? You know, you know that's a great question, and um, the the research I did and the and the book I wrote focuses focuses quite a bit uh, on on Rolex and and exa- what Rolex was saying about itself. Although I I do actually spend some time uh, uh, talking about Bulova, but but I do think that Rolex was an organization for for many many years. They were actually doing a great job conveying to the public like, this notion that that people in risky circumstances, um, people achieving great things, uh, they turned to Rolex. And if they weren't the first 
to do that. They they were certainly um, and still are the brand that that continues to regularly send that message through you know reward um, granting people or giving uh, successful winners of races and that sort of thing watches. Um, just after there's a fascinating advertisement um, after. Uh, World War II, in which a um, prisoner of war actually talked about um, counterfeiting a Rolex watch and sort of bribing a guard with it so that they could um, get some medicine for for other uh, prisoners um, in that situation. And again, you just see Rolex delivering this message from all different angles that if you are in challenging circumstances, um, Rolex is the watch for you and it'll help, you know, it'll be a way for you to achieve great things. How did Rolex share this message? Were they buying ads in traditional media? Were they doing events? I think that today, a lot of these companies seem to get frazzled when it comes to how to spend marketing and where. And it appears to me that Rolex was just using, you know, the then traditional marketing channels but doing storytelling, it never seemed to be just a picture of a watch. If you look at those ads, like most of it was text, right? It was mm-hmm. mostly storytelling. Uh, wh- you know, where was Rolex choosing to distribute these messages? So I believe that I mean my 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 book actually uh, explores quite a bit their uh, focus on spending in and print advertising in different magazines and and newspapers um, and and that sort of thing because the, you know the book does focus on sort of the 1950s and 60s and and that was the you know predominant form of of distributing information distributing news and and also uh, distributing advertising but the agency they decided to work with. J. Walter Thompson, one of the reasons they decided to collaborate with JWT was that this that particular company had worked with brands like General Motors to develop um, advertising on sort of a, what at that point was a brand new medium, uh, television. So, so the other thing um, that I talk about in the book is actually Rolex branching out into novel forms of advertising. Um, in particular, they actually uh, produced a sort of a short film about uh, the history of timekeeping, um, starting with sort of sundials and and different kinds of clocks like an incense clock that um, was was developed and used in Asia where a stick of incense would burn and it would burn through a rope and these bells would drop and chime on a regular basis. Um, they actually developed this film uh, showing all different kinds of of uh, timekeeping methodologies over uh, centuries and millennia. And uh, sort of the culminating moment of the film is actually an oyster shell opening up and out comes a um, oyster perpetual watch. Or at that point, it may have just only been an oyster watch. So they actually were branching out into these kinds of new media like television or motion pictures. Uh, and, you know, they have a very close relationship with the motion picture industry to this day. They're, they're heavily involved in the Academy Awards. And they also were, were looking at opportunities like radio uh, as a place where they could sort of promote their product and, and sort of raise awareness of exactly what it was that they offered. So J. Walter Thompson, the, one of the big reasons they chose to work with that business was that they were pioneering in a lot of these new industries. In fact, 
JWT helped Austria start up their television broadcasting industry, um, essentially from nothing. And initially, national authorities were sort of a little uh, concerned in Austria about having this advertising company um, sort of helping it uh, start a brand new uh, form of media. You know, the, some people might claim that's a little bit like having the the fox in the hen house. That's why you know, sometimes you have public broadcasters that sort of swear off of advertising, but um, the the Austrian authorities actually ended up um, feeling a great deal of appreciation for the experience JWT had with uh, broadcast television uh, industries across the world, and um, invited them back to really help um, establish that that sort of new form of media in that market. And so um, JWT was able to sort of collaborate with with Rolex um, on these new forms of media. Um, and and I think, again, that their willingness to kind of branch out in that direction um, is something that, that served them well over many, many years. Now, I think it's important to discuss how media has changed and the relevance on the strategy that Rolex has, because the strategy continues to make sense, but media has obviously shifted in a lot of ways. A lot of people have lamented the decline of print, myself included, who grew up reading magazines of all types. But I think it's it's fair enough to say that, that print media is, is not nearly what it used to be. Mm-hmm. What are the modern analogs? I know there's a lot of new media uh, between you know digital magazines and, of course, the, the broad scope, which is social media. But for the types of media that Rolex was investing in the 1950s and 1960s, what do you think are the modern analogs today? What is, for them, the best way of spending their money in a way that gets a large amount of people, but through channels that they feel are dignified? Yeah, that's that's a, a, an excellent question, and I, you know, as as long as the internet has been with us, um, I, you know, I, I personally remember sort of the pre pre internet days, and uh, but you know, it has been um, sort of in the mix for you know many many years now. I, I do think we're we're still seeing a process unfold. Where sort of the transition to um, online media and and sort of traditional forms of of print media kind of going in the decline in some ways, I, I think we're still seeing that process unfold, and and we're not kind of at at the end state yet. That um, what we will ultimately see. I don't think there are a lot of excellent um, substitutes for for print media, in the sense that print media kind of almost, uh, in in a lot of ways, it kind of guaranteed attention, right? So you were you had this uh, newspaper open and you were going to turn the page, but it's not like a whole other newspaper would drop out of the sky and sort of. You know, draw your attention away from it. Um, when we, when we now that we have digital media, it, it you know attention is very much the currency of the realm when it comes to um, online media, and um, you know it's it's just a very different landscape when um, you know people can switch apps if they're not entertained. Um, they can switch websites. Uh, they can you know go to different social media, and so there's just a whole lot of more competition uh, for people's attention. And I think that's one reason why uh, Rolex has um, vested itself so fully um, in events. Um, one of the things that's that's almost guaranteed to keep 
people's attention is an event like a Formula One race, for example, where people are guaranteed to be sort of locked on that screen because they want to see how the race unfolds. They want to see how it ends. Uh, they may even want to see the lead up to the race and and sort of all the coverage of drivers getting in the cars and and that sort of thing. So so I think events are um, one place where people's attention is held and and in some ways almost guaranteed. And so that's why you see you know Rolex the Rolex coronet on sort of the uh, crash barriers and that sort of thing um, as the cars go around a Formula One lap. Um, it's because you you know, they know, much like a newspaper, there's going to be a half hour or an hour where a lot of attention is going to be paid to what's happening and, and their name and their brand will be uh, in front of those people. Um, I do think that you you have seen um, really novel efforts um, like Autumn RPG's uh, event on YouTube um, where they... Uh, revealed the, you know, Black Panther watch and, you know, had an auction uh, for that watch and all kinds of stars joining them uh, for that uh, time. Brands are, are trying to set up these events so that people will pay attention for extended period of time um, and and kind of create a compelling moment um, that, that people can participate in. Uh, but these are um, things that, again, uh, watch companies, for example, may not have a whole lot of experience in producing a half-hour live YouTube show. Um, and so it's expensive, it's new, and it's going to take some time before uh, people sort of get their, their legs under them and, and can use those as effectively um, as print advertising was used in the past. That's very interesting. And I think, you know, looking at it today, Rolex obviously spends more money on marketing than a lot of brands and hopefully they'll continue to innovate and try new things. But in the past, in sort of the heyday of watch advertising in the you know, 50s and 60s and things like that, was Rolex spending more than its competitors or was it spending about the same? Was there just sort of across the board a lot more money spent uh, in marketing and advertising? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Um, so one thing that was very surprising uh, that I encountered in the process of sort of um, reviewing the, the primary source materials for this book was that um, the, the the advertising agency that worked with Rolex, uh, J. Walter Thompson, uh, they were sort of routinely bemoaning the fact that uh, they were having a hard time getting Rolex to pay uh, for advertising work they had already done and delivered on in the past. And, you know, it's just really baffling to think that there was any moment in history for this currently extremely successful brand where uh, an advertising agency was sort of chasing them down to get them to sort of pay their bills. Now, you know, I think this reveals a few things, and, and it does relate to your question one thing it reveals is that you know it, it was Rolex success was not guaranteed um, in the 1960s and 1950s. The the business was was relatively new, and you know they were trying to push as hard as they could to establish their position in a market where there were other brands that had a 50, 60, 70 year lead time um, on them. 
But it may also show that, um, you know, these expenses were relatively um, significant for Rolex. Um, whether or not it was more than what other brands were doing um, is is an open question. I, I didn't necessarily have information that would allow me to compare what Rolex was spending to um, other brands like, like Omega, although Omega does enter the scene a number of times um, in the book. It's clear that, that Rolex actually viewed viewed Omega as a competitor, and um, actually J. Walter Thompson uh, would, through its contact in the media industry, sort of sometimes learn that Omega was placing advertisements or might place advertisements in location X, Y, and Z. And they, in one episode, they preempted Omega by just buying up all that space ahead of time and sort of uh, denying Omega that space. Um, whether or not they had any plans to use it in the moment was uh, kind of an open question. But it's clear that they were devoting a lot of resources um, to this effort of uh, promoting themselves. Um, uh, Heinegger would actually visit their offices um, and 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 talk with them about strategy. Um, the J. Walter Thompson he would kind of lay out parameters for what they should try to achieve with the advertising, particularly when it comes to sort of. A, a uniform message of some sort across all these different markets. And there was very regular communication between um, Rolex headquarters in Geneva um, and this advertising agency, J. Walter Thompson. Um, so even if the amount of money um, was not significant, possibly, compared to Rolex competitors, um, the amount of attention which, and, and effort that management was, was putting into these efforts efforts was, was certainly very valuable, and it was certainly very significant. When did Rolex begin to have such positive cash flows? It sounds like they, you know, trying to get their bills paid. I mean, you obviously, you don't, you don't pay people because you yourself, you know, have to manage your cash flow. Um, obviously, today, Rolex is very, very wealthy. At what point in the history did it transfer from just constantly spending, constantly spending, to starting to have, like, you know, a lot of cash in the bank? That's an excellent question, and and I don't necessarily have uh, detailed access to the company's financials. That that's one of the sort of downsides, in some sense, for outside observers of of a nonprofit like like Rolex is that there's no requirement that they sort of publish financial statements on a regular basis, like a publicly traded company would have to. So. Um, it's a little unclear, you know, when their their cash flow started to look look positive and look good for them. We can sort of trace a number of uh, uh, major successes they had with particular references, um, like the GMT that right. was, you know, extremely well received by uh, the piloting community in particular. Um, as you know, air travel took off, um, Rolex was very fortunate to get into some relationships with companies like. Like Pan Am, that that sort of um, provided them with a certain uh, attractiveness to to people who saw this jet setting lifestyle and and really wanted to be associated with it. 
So we did, you know, you did start to see success when it came to models like the GMT, uh, like the Submariner, and and certainly those were the sort of initial points where the company um, could could count on selling a couple of things very very well. But like a lot of other um, uh, Swiss watch businesses in the 1980s, um, they you know found some challenges when it came to selling uh, internationally. Um, they certainly struggled with with certain uh, designs like the Daytona and so um, when the, even though there were sort of periods where it looked like they had watches that were selling out and and in fact I, I talk quite a bit about um, the fact that that shortages were something that were happening with Rolexes even back in the 1960s for certain references um, they had those periods where you know stuff was just flying off the shelves but they also had periods where um, it was a lot more difficult to sell. They were offering discounts. And so there very much was an ebb and flow um, for, to the business. You mentioned the GMT as being a particularly successful product. And today, Rolex sort of tries to put some degree of equal emphasis on all of its babies, its pillars, as it would call it. Um, but throughout history, what were, from what you know, really those big successes in addition to the GMT? What were the ones that Rolex just you know, hit out of the park sold for many years and allowed them to invest in a lot of new projects. Yeah, so I, I would definitely have to say the the Oyster Perpetual uh, was it was a huge part of their success um, in in almost all advertisements. Um, that was something that they they promoted because it it was. The, a part of their catalog, a part of their portfolio that had, had certainly been around for a very, very long time. Uh, you know, people kind of get the idea that they, they want a high accuracy, reliable watch um, that, you know, won't break down if, you know, you happen to forget it's on and, you know, submerge your hand in, you know, some dishwater or something like that. So uh, I would say the Oyster Perpetual was, was something that um, they regularly promoted and and really, in a lot of ways, that was the bedrock upon which um, a lot of other success was built. You also can't ignore the role of Tudor in their success. Um, Tudor was, was very much promoted um, side by side with um, a lot of these other models that uh, we're familiar with, you know, some Mariners and GMTs and, and that sort of thing. And and Tudor, um, they sort of leveraged to reach out to, um, you know, certain professions like construction and, and that sort of thing. Um, they, they gave it this uh, sort of aura of, of robustness and um, sort of resistance to shock and, and you know, getting knocked about um, and you know, a high quality watch that um, was somewhat accessible, uh, but also reliable. And, um, you know, I think Tudor is, is a huge reason why the company was successful over time, because, you know, that provided them with a little bit more of, of volume selling um, compared to some, some other watches that were maybe a little bit more specialized, uh, like the Cosmograph, like Daytona, um, that, you know, they might have struggled with in terms of finding uh, buyers, at least back then. These days, um, it's, it's a very popular model. So there's obviously a lot of important periods throughout history or interesting things that you noticed. You mentioned going through some of these archives. Rolex, as you mentioned, does not need to make a lot of stuff public, but there are 
you know, resources out there. Obviously, there's so much information you'd like to have. What, what did you have available to you, and, and why was it so instructive in allowing you to write an entire book about this topic? Yeah, so the book was actually um, inspired by a, a Zoom event I, I sort of attended. It was a, a Red Bar of Paris event during the pandemic in which uh, a guy named Nick Fedowitz, who, who runs a business called Ad Patina, where he sells vintage advertisements and, and frames them and that sort of thing, he was talking about sort of how um, advertising, in a lot of ways, is is sort of like the the amber, uh, you know, that might hold a, a mosquito from the the dinosaur era, and you can kind of like get a real sense of a lot of things that were happening in history um, through ads. It's almost like something that preserves history, and and it's something that we can. Um, uh, sort of use in that way as as a way of kind of thinking about other things that were happening. So you know, Nick's presentation uh, was was really kind of compelling, and I've done some publishing on the media economics. And um, after his presentation, I just started looking um, for different archives uh, that might hold ads. Um, and, and sort of examples of advertising for Rolex um, from the, you know, 50s and 60s and that sort of time. And I happened to encounter in the um, History of Advertising Trust archives in the UK, I encountered the papers of a man by the name of Giles Montague Pollock. And he actually worked for Rolex's advertising agency. Um, he was actually sort of the junior person on the account, if you if you will, and was was really involved in all sorts of different deliberations over um, existing ads and whether they would continue to run, where they would run, uh, whether there would be new advertising campaigns, uh, and that sort of thing. So he actually had kept his, all of his correspondence, um, sort of inner office memos, if you will, about the Rolex account and, and donated them to the History of Advertising Trust. And this gave me sort of a, a really unfiltered view into what it took to promote Rolex, what Rolex's goals were um, in its marketing efforts, and um, sort of all the work that went into that, as well as the personalities that were involved. So I had these primary materials that I really felt gave a, a, a unique view into what marketing Rolex took. What was Rolex's personality at the time? You obviously read a lot of the correspondence. You mentioned that they were kind of a deadbeat client for a while. But what were their goals? What were their pers- What was their personality like? Were they upbeat? Were they kind of stodgy and Swiss? Are they same as they are today? I'm just curious how it's changed. Well, I would say that you know, they definitely had this this very international view of what they were trying to achieve. They weren't necessarily trying to target any particular market and say, you know, this is the region or the country that's that's really gonna help us uh, make our name. Uh, they had authorized dealerships all around the world. And, and they were really trying to expand into markets that they believed um, w- should be successful for the brand, but maybe weren't quite uh, where they needed to be yet. 
So, uh, in particular, they focused a fair bit uh, in the in the archival materials I have. They focused a fair bit on Latin America and trying to um, expand their uh, advertising there. Um, there's quite a bit of discussion of Australia and and how to reach that market, the unique features of that market, and and what it might take to convince people to buy there. And also um, Africa, and in particular Nigeria, um, they were focused on um, trying to to get more advertising there um, and continue to expand on um, the existing advertising base. So I do think that's something we still see to this day, this sort of international focus of, you know, their marketing campaigns and, and that sort of thing. But there were certainly um, some uh, examples of what you might think of as sort of a conservative or cautious pr- approach uh, when it comes to advertising. So there, you know, were some campaigns where the account executives themselves said, oh, "This may be a little bit, you know, a too far of a reach uh, for the brand at, at this moment in time." And Heinegger, in particular, was very interested in in trying to sort of shape the message in in one particular way and make sure that when someone in any market thought of the brand Rolex, they were all kind of thinking similarly about what that brand meant and why it was desirable. So they, they weren't necessarily very open to sort of um, local uh, versions of advertising that had sort of been customized. At one point, an authorized dealer um, in South America said, we've had some success with this ad we designed ourselves. Uh, they sent it to J. Walter Thompson, and uh, who shared it with Rolex headquarters in Geneva, and um, it more or less went nowhere. Um, so they were they were hesitant to to push the advertising in certain directions. Um, there was one possibility to have a prominent British actor um, sort of promote or wear Rolex that JWT became aware of, and um, the company kind of shied away from that. So there were certainly instances in which the company was trying to be very careful with with how it went about its marketing. When did the shift to ambassadors and such a focus on wares happen? Because I agree with you that traditionally, while brands want to be associated with events and there was a whole lot of advertising happening, the whole idea of the you know sort of uh, uh, branded wearer or someone is paid to represent the brand visually, it's a relatively modern phenomenon. When did that start to become such a major part of uh, the business model in terms of marketing? Well, I think that um, Rolex, even back then, was was doing a bit of this. However, they were very much doing it in a in a different different way. So, I do have a couple of posts on my blog where I explore um, efforts by Rolex to sort of um, get information back from high profile people about the performance of their their watches in extreme circumstances. So um, one of the people um, they worked with is a scientist by the last name of Pugh, P-O-U-G-H, who uh, turns out to be have been very instrumental in the first summoning of Everest in terms of developing the equipment that the climbers needed to do that and also the sort of methodology of breathing oxygen around the clock and, and that sort of thing. Um, they actually were regularly communicating with him um, about his a Rolex he owned, and he was actually bringing 
it into cold chambers that would that would um, sort of expose the watch to extreme conditions. And he was sharing back to them, you know, what that did to timekeeping. And they were thinking about different um, sort of lubricants and and oils that might help with those those extreme temperatures. Um, you see this continue through the 1960s um, with the American test pilot community. So Rolex was very interested in in getting watches on the wrist of wrist of people uh, in the X program. These um, sort of high speed planes that were were dropped from high altitude bombers and would would go multiple mocks that um, had never been achieved before. These weren't necessarily ambassadors, but they were certainly very high profile people that the company was communicating with. And they sound I think- like prototype partners. Yes, yes. It, it, it certainly, in terms of the circumstances that the watches were in, um, they were very much testing the watches um, it, because of the circumstances they were in, and and providing Rolex with information about that. So, so in some ways, that's kind of the roots or origins for Rolex of of ambassadors. And you know, these days you, you might argue that they're still kind of doing that with athletes in tennis and that sort of thing who are, you know, wearing these watches and they're experiencing sort of regular shocks from a professional tennis player hitting the ball and that sort of thing. Although I, I probably shouldn't compare tennis to flying a, a multiple mock experimental plane. But but certainly um, uh, Rolex had, had uh, branched into um, sort of ambassador-type um, uh, arrangements uh, pretty early into the 1950s and 1960s. We're almost out of time, and there's so much to talk about. Um, I guess my, my final line of question will be about more of the modern era. How would you summarize what Rolex's overall strategy is when it comes to marketing? Obviously, it's deeply tied to spending and, and in econ- economics, how would you sort of define what their strategy is and has been for the last several decades? How has it changed? Again, the idea is to explain in terms to other brands, maybe even, uh, how Rolex approaches this. Because I think that there's a difficulty in explaining. Everybody wants to be Rolex. <laughs> Everybody wants Rolex success. Mm-hmm. But in implementation, so many brands, when they try to recreate Rolex's success, they don't do the things that Rolex does. <laughs> and so... How would you articulate what Rolex's marketing strategy is in sort of an economics context? Well, I, I think that in, in some ways, uh, what Rolex presents is uh, ex- extremely um, sort of straightforward um, for the people they're, they're trying to get the message to. So even if you look at a lot of what they put on, for example, their, their Instagram account, um, you know, it's very focused on the timepiece itself. Um, you know, there might be some very attractive videography or some music behind it, but but they present um, imagery and messaging, um, which is is kind of. Uh, something you can kind of get very, very quickly, uh, regardless of language and and regardless maybe of the wider context. And and what they convey to people is sort of quality, 
reliability, stability, and achievement. And those messages, they've been able to get across to people in a convincing way for, for decades on end. Um, and, you know, some one way to achieve that, though, is to sort of be steady and slow um, in the development of the product that you're offering. Sometimes this can feel a little bit frustrating for collectors who want to see, um, you know, some major change or some major innovation um, in horology when it comes to Rolex. But but really, that, that slow, um, steady, and accessible message is a huge part of why they've been successful over time because when when pe- you say the word Rolex people know what it means and and they know what the watches look like um, and and that doesn't look like it's gonna fall away or change radically um, in the very short run so so those I think would be very key elements to um, Rolex's success but it's certainly the case in the modern era they, they face brand new challenges um, like the shortages like the secondary market premium and and they're trying to um, ex- enhance communication about those issues. They're trying to um, expand capacity in order to address those. Uh, but those are brand new challenges, and um, you know it remains to be seen if they'll they'll summit them. But uh, I don't think a whole lot of people have have made a whole lot of money betting against Rolex. I think the next time we speak, we'll have to focus a little bit more on the modern-day economics of what Rolex does and is doing, especially around some of the more popular topics. Um, But we're out of time. Brendan, please tell everyone where they can find more about you on the internet. Great. So on Instagram, I'm uh, K-A Timepieces. That's my handle. Uh, My blog is uh, Horolonomics, and they can find the book on Amazon. So thank you so so much, Ariel. Absolutely. Everyone, this has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Brendan Cunningham. You can read his book, which is the Selling the Crown, The Secret History of Marketing Rolex. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.